Welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. Brought to you by Ospin and Fresenius Carby. We are your hosts. I'm Bridie. And I'm Emily. And we are accredited practicing dietitians. We don't have all the answers. So each episode, we will deliver insightful conversations with our nutrition leaders who help us navigate the ever-changing world of clinical nutrition. This podcast takes you on a deep dive into evidence-based nutrition and what it means to be a nutrition professional. Together, we will find the answers to your questions, shine a spotlight on our nutrition colleagues, and help you create an impact in your nutrition career. In this season, we talk with leading nutrition professionals who share their expertise in oncology, enteral and parenteral nutrition. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare professional prior to providing or accepting any clinical interventions. So Nicole, we've done our screening and we've got an assessment now and we've diagnosed someone with malnutrition. You spoke before about the importance of really individualizing our management strategies to um, those underlying factors for a particular patient. What are some of those key strategies? You spoke before briefly about small frequent meals, those sort of things. Can you elaborate on on how we really help patients um, who have been diagnosed with malnutrition? Sure. So I think, um, first of all, we have to, and I think, as I mentioned before, with um, managing someone with cachexia, I think we have to understand what's actually contributing to their um, poor food intake or or, um, their unintentional weight loss. So often um, it's it's nutrition impact symptoms, which we identify through using tools like the PGSGA. So um, once we understand, you know, what's actually contributing to that, so maybe it is poor appetite or, um, you know, in which case we do recommend something like small frequent meals, we recommend high energy, high protein foods. So we're really maximizing the um, protein and energy that people are are consuming in in the small amounts they're able to eat. Um, But if there's other symptoms, so for example, someone is not managing to eat very well because they've got really severe nausea, then we really need to engage with other members of our multidisciplinary team. So their oncologists, for example, and get make sure that their symptoms are being managed optimally. So that can make a huge difference then to someone as well. Another example might be um, severe mouth ulceration from chemotherapy or radiotherapy. And again, um, make advocating for adequate pain control there and, and, and mouth analgesia can really make an enormous difference for someone's ability to then consume adequate nutrition. So I think um, those are really the key factors is, is working out well, what's actually going on, what's contributing to um, the, the poor intake in this person that I'm working with right now. Um, But it's also um, understanding the broader picture as well. So there's been so many other factors other than the nutrition impact symptoms that can affect it. So things like social factors, you know, do they have support at home? Or they're going home and they're so exhausted that they can't actually prepare a meal for themselves. So we need to think about strategies to help um, in those situations. So it might be, you know, asking family and friends to help more um, organizing pre-prepared meals, for example, those types of things, or even, I know, I certainly remember many people telling me as they were going through cancer treatment, they're spending so much of the day in the hospital that it's really hard to then organize to shop and and prepare meals as well. So we really need to consider the, the bigger picture of what's going on. 
Mm, certainly. So really um, listening to that individual patient, what their needs are, where their problems are coming from. And then I guess leaning on our uh, multidisciplinary team to really best service those needs. So whether it's psychology or social work or pharmacy or medical, um, just making sure that that, that nutrition need is, is met by whoever's best place to do that. Absolutely. And I think um, we really advocate now for malnutrition or nutritional care being a, a multidisciplinary treatment. So it's not just the dietitian who needs to be involved, um, although the dietitian will often be the person who is at the centre of that and coordinating the, the input of the other team members, as you've just said. And I think traditionally the focus has been on adequate energy and protein in any form. Obviously, you've described lots of the issues that lead to inadequate intake and it's complex and multifactorial. Are there any studies that you know of that are looking at a higher quality diet? So obviously adequate energy and protein is the aim, but does it make a difference whether you get that through whole, good quality whole foods with lots of micronutrients and fibre versus some of the more highly processed foods that we unfortunately end up recommending in our hospital food service systems? Yeah, and that's an excellent question and actually something I'm really interested in as well. So to my knowledge, there hasn't been much exploration of that in oncology in terms of managing malnutrition. Um, but I think certainly it's an area that needs more exploration. Um, we have as dietitians typically um, promoted high energy, high protein, and, and often will tell people to eat whatever they can manage. And in some situations that might be appropriate. That might be literally all that person can manage and they really need to be, um, I guess, given the, not permission, but, you know, to be told that, that that's okay if that's what you can manage at the moment. But I think we do really need to start thinking about healthier sources of, of fats and energy um, for someone who is able to, to manage that type of diet as well. Um, we need to be thinking you know, with the, um, you know, the huge improvements we're seeing in, in survival um, statistics in, in most cancer types as well, that people are living longer after their cancers and we need to be getting them through that um, in a healthy state. We don't want to be contributing to any other underlying chronic illnesses that they might have. And um, certainly I've got a PhD student at the moment who I will put in a little bit of a plug for. So um, Annie Curtis, who is looking at this, actually looking at um, dietary patterns um, and how they relate to um, cancer-related malnutrition and muscle loss. So are there sort of broader patterns, not just focusing on single nutrients like protein, for example, but are there patterns of eating um, that are quite um, protective of developing malnutrition or muscle loss during treatment and you know does that encompass other nutrients or sort of healthier fats um, and lean protein sources for example. Thanks it's great to hear that the research is heading in that direction I guess it's, it's an ongoing evolution evolving the research is always evolving isn't it and so I guess first up we just need to identify the amount of energy and protein, whether or not we can achieve that, and then we can broaden to the quality of those, those, those foods. That's right. Okay, so Nicole, as you were speaking about before, obviously there's different types of nutrition risk with different um, different types of oncology um, diagnoses. Particularly, you spoke about the upper GI group and the impact that treatment has on, on that area. What other patient groups are at high risk in oncology 
So there's quite a few different groups that we would typically deem to be high nutrition risk. So because of their cancer type or the type of treatment they're um, receiving, they're at much higher risk of, of malnutrition or having issues with nutritional intake during their treatment. So head and neck cancers are one of those, I think probably for quite obvious reasons, anything that's affecting the oral cavity is going to make um, nutritional intake pretty challenging, regardless of the type of treatment you have. Um, upper gastrointestinal cancers, as I've mentioned, for a similar reason, it's um, cancers that are affecting the gastrointestinal tract. So both the cancer and obviously the treatment itself is going to affect um, their ability to consume adequate nutrition. Uh, lung cancer is another quite high risk diagnosis, um, less so because of where the tumour is, um, unlike head and neck and upper GI cancers, you know, lung cancers don't always sort of obstruct or make our actual nutritional intake difficult, but they tend to have quite a high metabolic burden um, and the treatment types as well. So um, surgery and the, the radiotherapy, which can um, affect the esophagus as well, can put these um, patients at quite high nutritional risk. Um, even lower GI cancers as well, depending on the type of treatment. Again, it's affecting the, the gastrointestinal tract. So they're a group we always need to look out for. Um, some types of hematological cancers, so um, particularly people going through high-dose chemotherapy um, or um, stem cell transplants um, are at very high risk of nutritional difficulties as well. Um, I think any other cancers or people with other cancer types where the treatment um, is affecting the, the GI tract, that's really where um, we, we start to see, um, you know, a lot of difficulties with nutritional intake. So those are the, the types of groups I think we really need to be watching out for. Sure. And um, in addition to that screening and assessment model you spoke about before, are there any other models of care that can really help us in preventing malnutrition um, and optimising patient care in those high-risk groups? Yes. So I think, um, and again, I referred to the, the COSA position statement before, and certainly in there, we talk about these high risk um, groups and that that step of nutrition screening can actually, um, particularly in health services where there might be limited resources for screening, you can actually skip that and go straight to the assessment for some of those groups where we know that they're pretty high risk groups. And even if they're not at risk of malnutrition at the time they're presenting, they're going to be at risk at some point because of their cancer type and because of their treatment type. So in those situations, rather than, than going through the process of screening, which might use up resources that could be used elsewhere, um, you can certainly go straight to that assessment process. So I know there's a number of, of centres where patients that fit into those high risk groups are automatic referrals to the dietitian. So I think that's a great model if you've got the resources to apply that. And you've just talked about the high risk groups. In terms of the lower risk, lower nutrition risk groups, are there any areas of focus or recommendations around nutritional care for those patients? Yes, I think that's where the, the um, practice of screening really fits nicely. So um, because they are lower risk, um, often 
less resources might be directed there and particularly you know if you're in a hospital or health service where you have got limited resources that might be nursing or or dietetics um, if you can put into place um, malnutrition screening then you at least know that you are going to be identifying people who are at risk of nutritional um, of malnutrition or nutritional issues so I think I guess my personal opinion is that that that's sort of the good uh, a good strategy for those low risk groups that they don't all necessarily need to be seen but you definitely want to be putting something into place to identify the people who are requiring some support. Absolutely and especially when tools like the MST are so quick and easy to use you don't need training yeah so they're absolutely. very user-friendly. Nicole, in your 20 years of experience, what have been some of the most effective models of care that you've seen implemented in oncology? And I guess then um, how is that balanced with the resources as well? What's your advice in that? Probably a couple of things I could talk about there. So first, I think, um, I guess, multidisciplinary models of care I've seen work very effectively where dietitians are embedded into a multidisciplinary clinic. So not working alone um, for a particular you know, clinic or a cancer type where they're actually part of um, a, a, a clinical service where you know, there might be um, you know, doctors, nurses, uh, and I'm thinking as an example of, of a head and neck clinic where there's um, radiation oncologists, there's um, specialist nurses, there might be a speech pathologist and a dietitian all working together um, for this high risk or high nutritional risk um, group who um, work together in the clinic as a team to really um, you know, optimise efficiency and optimise care for that group. And I think that's something that works really well Likewise, where you have um, groups who are, have quite complex needs um, in relation to their care, which can include obviously nutrition as well. Um, and I'm thinking here about sort of, I guess, often they're labeled um, cachexia clinics, but I think they're you know, often treating malnutrition as well. But there's a number of those sorts of models of care, which I think are quite effective where again, you might have a psychologist in the clinic, a physiotherapist in the clinic, a dietitian, nurse. Um, often you'll have a, a palliative care physician who can really optimise symptom management. So those types of models of care, um, probably more, I've seen them more commonly used internationally, but we do have a couple of examples in Australia where they're used as well. And they certainly, um, the literature has shown them to be very effective um, at, at really optimizing people's physical function you know, reducing any deterioration in nutritional status for example so I think those types of multidisciplinary clinics and and models of care are really um, effective the other I guess model of care I've seen work really well um, and I was involved in this uh, quite substantially when I was working clinically previously at Peter Mac um, is nutrition care pathways and I find them a really really helpful model for managing um, nutrition in, in oncology in a really evidence-based um, manner and that's really just creating um, I guess it's like an algorithm of, of the nutritional care so 
when patients will be seen, um, how, you know, who will complete the screening, who will complete the assessment, when this will happen, how often they'll be reviewed, um, decision-making sort of tools, I guess, around when you would consider enteral nutrition if it's appropriate in that group and, you know, what type of monitoring might occur and developing those kind of pathways um, in collaboration with a multidisciplinary team can be really effective and, and we've seen that um, they can help reduce unplanned admissions, they can help um, prevent weight loss, they can, um, you know, they're really associated with some pretty um, important outcomes in improving nutritional care as well. So I think if you are able to implement things like that within your service, I think they're very effective. Mm, absolutely. No, they sound really effective. And I think the common thread certainly um, echoes the importance of the multidisciplinary team again. So um, that's really good to have that reinforced. Are there common barriers when it comes to implementing models of care aimed at preventing malnutrition? There are. Um, and there was a survey that um, I was involved in, again, probably a couple of years ago, where we surveyed oncology health professionals, so um, dietitians, oncologists, nurses, um, other allied health professionals, just to find out, I guess, what the, the common barriers are, as well as enablers, um, to optimal nutrition care. And really the top one is time. So time to actually, and, and resources, I think, go alongside that to really dedicate to having appropriate screening and assessment practices within the health service. Um, the other one I think is really um, around education, I guess, so, and, and knowledge. I, I, and obviously as dietitians, you know, we're acutely aware of the importance of nutrition in oncology and, and in identifying and, and managing malnutrition, but, um, the awareness among the multidisciplinary team might not be quite so, um, I guess, as, as high as it is um, obviously for us. So that can be a barrier as well. And, and certainly making sure that, that there is sufficient um, education and support for um, our, our broader team members to um, understand the importance of, of nutrition within our um, oncology population. I think that's a, a huge, um, what well, can be a barrier, but it's an enabler as well if we provide it. That's right. And I guess that's where that uh, MDT clinic model you've spoken about a moment ago is highlighted because when you're actually all working alongside each other with the patients, it's ongoing education through discussions, isn't it? Rather than a sort of formal malnutrition lecture or, or education session, it's more practical education to the MDT and vice versa. We learn more about their roles and at the end of the day, the patients benefit. Exactly. Um, Nicole, are there a lot of alternative diets in oncology? Is that something that, that patients would um, raise to their nutrition professional and ask for advice about? Good question. So yes, um, certainly research and, and surveys tell us that they're very commonly used. Um, I mean, I guess probably not even just diets, but complementary therapies generally are very popular, um, probably far more so than we are actually aware of as clinicians. So I think often people don't necessarily want to disclose that information to their health professionals. They're not quite sure how it's going to be received um, so we, I don't think we always fully um, understand the 
depth of, of um, I guess, uptake of, of some of these alternative therapies. Um, but I guess with diet, particularly as dietitians, um, if we see someone, uh, obviously we're assessing their dietary intake, but if, if that person's not actually referred to us, we won't even know if they're following um, an unusual diet unless someone else in the multidisciplinary team has picked that up somehow um, and then referred to a dietitian for um, a, an assessment or some um, advice and support. So I think I mean, probably one of the more common ones, um, and it's not even necessarily a diet, but it's a question, and I'm sure everyone uh, gets it as well about um, sugar and sugar feeding cancer. And, and there's a lot of fear and uncertainty there around um, you know, doing everything that um, someone can to you know, reduce the likelihood of their cancer progressing, for example. And I think that one's really come about because of the altered metabolism or the different metabolism we see in cancer cells compared to healthy cells where there's a, a much higher glucose uptake um, by cancer cells because of the, some of the metabolic features of those cancer cells. And there's, I guess, this theory that if um, cancer cells are then starved of glucose, that they won't be able to utilise energy as a, um, you know, efficiently. They won't then grow and progress. So that's really where that's come from. And I think... Um, I guess the, the main thing to be aware of there is that um, you know, just like in any situation, if we are not um, feeding ourselves um, sugar or any other sort of carbohydrate foods that our bodies have mechanisms to utilise fat and protein instead. So although in theory it sounds like it's helpful um, it, it actually just eliminates a huge number of food groups, um, particularly in people who could be at significant risk of malnutrition anyway. And their main focus should really be on eating adequate nutrition and, and, and keeping their you know, nutritional status as, as good as they possibly can. So we certainly sort of try and, and um, you know, I guess, explain some of these uh, you know, the rationale behind some of this to people as well. So often you find people have heard this for, through a friend or a relative um, who, who's trying to be helpful. You get a couple of situations, I think, where you see people who are adamant that they want to follow this type of advice. Um, you know, obviously they're facing a, a life-threatening illness and, and want to do anything they possibly can to help themselves and can be quite um, committed to um, the diet that they believe is going to help them. And I think in those situations, we have to be really careful to work with people to sort of, I guess, make them, um, you know, to, to help them achieve their goals. So if they are wanting to follow a certain path, um, I think we have to respect that as much as we can, but obviously educating them about what, um, you know, the lack of evidence behind some of those um, alternative diets and if we can come to some sort of compromise and work with them in a way that's maintaining a, a adequate nutritional intake but as much as possible respecting their views about what they want to achieve I think the other one that's um, really seeing a growing interest is fasting um, and there's a lot sort of a lot of questions around fasting diets particularly prior to chemotherapy treatment. So it's sort of 
based on the same concept um, as the sugar feeds cancer um, idea where there's obviously altered metabolism in the cancer cells that utilize glucose um, much more efficiently um, and when the body is starved and, and we then go into a state of using ketone bodies, cancer cells can't actually use those as efficiently as healthy cells. So there's this theory that if we are fasting in the lead up to chemotherapy, that the cancer cells will be more vulnerable to the toxicity of the chemotherapy and the healthy cells won't be because they utilize ketone bodies more efficiently. The research in this is very, very early at the moment. Um, I haven't looked at it recently, but it's predominantly in animal models. And I think they may be considering some human trials um, where, and I think it's important to say it's not fasting um, for prolonged periods. Some of the studies have looked at anything between sort of 24 to 72 hours, um, very mixed results still at the moment. And I think one of the important things to point out is that very few of them actually look at um, nutritional status and whether this has an impact on malnutrition. So um, it's early research at this stage. Um, I think it's certainly not something that we recommend in practice. It's not something that's recommended by any guidelines at this point. Um, it's probably a, a watch this space um, and certainly would never be recommended to be used in, in people who are in those sort of high-risk nutritional categories that we spoke about earlier. Thanks, Nicole. And to wrap up, what are your top tips when working in oncology? Okay, it's probably two, I think. Um, so one is, oh, maybe there's a couple more. Um, so really find your champions. So find the people in your health service that are nutrition advocates who you know, see um the importance of nutrition, um, but uh, you know, within other health um, disciplines. So, those are the people that you can really work with strongly to advocate for nutrition care, get those really solid models of care into place. So, I think that's probably one of my top tips. Um, outside of that, I think make connections with the the broader nutrition community, um, whether that be within your state, your city, um, within Australia. There's lots and lots of great work going on in oncology so you know, reach out to other people learn from what's worked in other health services as well that's um, can be save you a lot of time from reinventing the wheel and, and learn from others experiences and I think um, I guess stay passionate as well about what you do because it really does make a huge difference for the people who are going through cancer treatment great thank you and Nicole, you've spoken about a few resources and links to things which we'll put in our show notes for the episode as well. Um, but are there any other resources that you would recommend to nutrition professionals who are keen to upskill in oncology? Yes, there's actually lots of resources around. So um, I think I mentioned the ESPEN guidelines. So there's ESPEN guidelines for nutrition and cancer. They're really helpful. Um, the COSA position statement, which I've mentioned on cancer-related malnutrition and sarcopenia. Uh, the COSA nutrition group have also developed um, guidelines, uh, evidence-based guidelines for managing people with head and neck cancer. Um, so for people that are working with that particular group, that's, they're a really useful resource. Um, Peter Mack has a huge number of resources through their Victorian Cancer Malnutrition Collaborative. Um, they've also got uh, an oncology nutrition resource manual that's really 
really practical and useful. Um, probably the other one, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics in America have recently released an update, a second edition of their Oncology Nutrition for Clinical Practice text, um, again, which is a great comprehensive um, and practical guide as well. So they'd probably be my main ones. That's great. We can link to all of those in the show notes as well. So thank you for sharing them. No problem. Nicole, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed being here. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast brought to you by Osman and Fresenius Carby. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and colleagues. To keep up to date with all the latest from Austin, you can head over to our website at www.ospen.org.au or email us at podcast at